Good morning. It's hard to believe it's August already. We have been in an, a summer series entitled World Upside Down, Turning the World Upside Down. And we've been looking at how do we navigate a world that's already been turned upside down by everything around us. All you, all you have to do is turn on the news, but I encourage you to not turn on the news. Uh, and you can see everything is upside down. Uh, and yet, as Christians in the book of Acts, it says that the Christian church, the early church, they were accused themselves of turning the world upside down. They didn't wait to be influenced. They were influencers, and it wasn't by, by doing huge things. It was subversive ways. It was in small ways through gospel witness and gospel deeds that turned the world literally upside down. And so we're learning how do we do that as a church? How do we do that as Christians? And we've looked at issues like pursuing justice and how do we deal with worry and how do our words impact other people and how do we love our neighbors? Today we are talking about a topic I'm sure everyone will be thrilled about, and that is money and generosity. Money and generosity. And the question I know is, in the midst of a pandemic and a potential economic downturn, why would we be talking about money and generosity? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First, Jesus talked about money a lot. He talked about it more than heaven and hell. So, if you read Luke's gospel, you'll find story after story about Jesus addressing how money and possessions impacts our hearts. What is our attitude towards those things? Second, isn't money and our view of money the cause for so much turmoil and struggle in our lives? Isn't it? It's one of the number one reasons for divorce. It's one of the number one reasons why friends are no longer friends. So would it actually be unloving for me to not address an issue that has such a significant impact on your life? Listen, as a pastor, I'm not concerned about how much you make. I'm not concerned about how much money you make. My concern is for your heart. But what I do know is this. You show me what you do with your money, and you're really giving me a window into your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so I'm called to shepherd your heart. We find this consistent theme in the New Testament. When a person experiences salvation in Jesus, like Zacchaeus, their view of wealth and money changes radically. And the final reason why we're talking about money is because now, in the midst of a pandemic and any trial in life, but especially something like this, th this is a test. What a pandemic or anything else, any other trial in life will do is it will test where you find your security. And often, in a season like this, often our grip will tighten on things like money. And we find our security. And if we're going to turn our world upside down, we will need to hold our money with an open hand. Ready to share with others. Ready to show that Jesus is our greatest treasure, not our money. So today's sermon, a little man, a big change, and generous living. Jesus is in Jericho, Luke 19. He's passing through. And we are in, immediately introduced to a man named Zacchaeus, a Jewish man named Zacchaeus. And we find he is a chief tax collector, it says, and he was rich. 
And as much as we might have disdain for IRS agents today or those who collect taxes now, that is nothing compared to the hatred for tax collectors back then. That's because back then a tax collector was considered a traitor and a thief. After Rome would come in and conquer a city or, or, or a nation state, they would hire people within that city to collect steep taxes for them. And Zacchaeus was one of them. But not just one of them, not just a tax collector. It, notice it says he's a chief tax collector. This word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. This was probably one of a kind. He landed the top job. He oversaw an entire taxation department that not only collected taxes for Rome, but would extract huge sums of money on top of that for himself and for all the guys that worked under him. He was filthy rich, literally filthy rich. He would have been hated by everyone, no friends, no life. Everyone knew he was a dirty, rotten sinner. You know, it's worth asking what kind of grip did money have on Zacchaeus' heart to cause him to live this way? You see what money can do? The love of money drove him to lie, steal, cheat, and sell out his own people. And yet we read in verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. What's going on here? Why does he even care about Jesus? Had he heard maybe about Jesus' powerful preaching and his amazing miracles and just wanted to see him for himself like a celebrity? Maybe Zacchaeus finally realized that wealth could not give him the satisfaction and happiness that he'd been longing for. We fall into the same trap. Money and material possessions hold out this promise that the more we have them, the happier we'll be. The better life will go. And so we chase after them and we make sacrifices to get more, accumulate more, earn more. But deep down, we still face this emptiness and we realize we're just running on the same hamster wheel as everybody else. Money can never provide what we think it can. And maybe Zacchaeus had started to feel that. Maybe Zacchaeus was just tired of being hated by people. He acted like he had thick skin. It took thick skin to get where he was, to burn lots of bridges, to destroy lots of lives. But after a while of being so ostracized and, and disdained, maybe the constant contempt, contempt made him feel just utterly alone. We don't know. But for whatever reason it says, he wanted to find out who Jesus was. But there was a problem. He was seeking Jesus... But on the account of the crowd, it says in verse 3, he could not. Why? How can I say this? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. You all don't know this, but this passage has held a dear place in my heart ever since I was a kid. As a wee little man myself, I have always found comfort knowing that I'm not alone. And see, he was shorter. And you know, usually it's kids. Usually if you have like shorter people and you're in a big crowd, you're trying to see something or see someone, usually out of, out of courtesy, you let the little kids go up front. You let shorter people go up front so they can see because most people can see over top of them. But not Zacchaeus. No way, man. Shove on, shorty. You're not getting to see Jesus. Not in front of me. I've been standing here since 6 a.m. 
And so he does something rather undignified and, and actually shocking for someone of his status. He, he climbs up a, up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You know that song? He just wanted a glimpse of Jesus. This is crazy. You know, imagine someone today, imagine the top dog of you know, the financial industry wearing a, a $10,000 suit and he starts climbing up a tree and you see him wearing his fancy shoes and you're like, what is that guy doing? He didn't care. He wanted to see Jesus as he was passing through, but Jesus did not pass through, did he? He stopped, it says, right where Zacchaeus was, and he says not, hey, can I come to your house today, Zacchaeus? No. He says, I must, look, I must stay at your house today, verse 5. That, that word must uh, indicates in, in Greek a divine necessity. He saw his encounter with Zacchaeus not as incidental, not as coincidental, but as a divine appointment with his creator, his savior. And Zacchaeus almost falls out of the tree, right? He's like, what? And it says he, he, he hurries down and welcomes Jesus joyfully. But he was the only one rejoicing, verse 7. Everyone else... You can kind of, in, in that day and age, you know, they would, he would have gone to Zacchaeus' home, but it would have been a wide open courtyard, and everyone would have been watching this. It's not like he was alone. Everyone would have been watching. And so they're grumbling. Same word in the Old Testament for the Israelites in the wilderness. They're murmuring, grumbling. They can't believe it. Of all the people Jesus could have chosen to visit with and have a meal with, Zacchaeus was the bottom of their list. He was a scoundrel. A chief tax collector, meaning a chief sinner. And Jesus chose to eat with him? You see, to go to someone's house in that day and age and to share a meal was a sign of intimate fellowship. Jesus' very offer to go to his house was scandalous. But if you know anything about Jesus, you know he often seeks out those whom the world rejects and discounts. He's actually drawn to outcasts and outsiders, and he has compassion on them. Jesus never writes somebody off. And so he extends an invitation to Zacchaeus. But listen, he offers to be with Zacchaeus. He offers fellowship, intimacy with Zacchaeus before he cleans up his life. Did he say, Zacchaeus, you stop your lying and cheating, and I'm coming over your house today? No, he doesn't. I'm coming to your house before any change happens. Why? Because he's teaching him and teaching us a profound lesson on the difference between religion and the gospel. Every other religion says essentially, change your life, clean up your life, and God will accept you. Look it up. I've, I, I minored in comparative religious studies at the University of Maryland, and I sat in classes with lectures, and I've read all kinds of fancy textbooks, and I've realized, man, relig- I mean, there's some beautiful things in each religion. You know, beautiful customs, but at the, at the, at the core of, their, of every other faith, it is this. Do what God asks you to do, and then he'll accept you. The gospel is the exact opposite. God offers you acceptance in Jesus Christ as a gift, and that changes you. 
In the gospel, acceptance is not the reward for having a changed life. It's the power to live a changed life. See, you can't earn salvation. Only Jesus can give you salvation. Only Jesus can declare to you and I, verse 9, today salvation has come. See, after meeting with Jesus, Zacchaeus is a changed man. He gets up in verse 8 and he says, Behold, Lord. Get it. He's saying, Look, Lord. He's, he's actually filled with wonder and joy at this announcement. He's not like, After meeting with Jesus, I'm supposed to give more money to the poor. How much do I owe him? No. Look, Lord. He's, he's just like almost giddy because his heart's been changed. He stands up in front of everyone and he literally repents of his sin of greed. And his lack of generosity. And he doesn't just repent. He doesn't repent means he turns. He changes his ways. But he actually makes restitution. He says, look, Lord, look, look, Jesus. I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. How can I not? And if I have defrauded anyone, which he knows he has, why else would he say that? I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And Jesus says, Salvation has come. Not because you have given your money to the poor. Make sure you, that's clear. What he's saying is, I know that you have received salvation as a gift because you have evidenced it in giving your money away. Listen, this, there's one lesson, really. One main lesson of this passage. And that is this. When God's grace grips your heart, money loses its grip on your heart. That's the lesson. When God's grace grips your heart, truly grips your heart, money, and really you could say anything else, loses its grip on your heart. We'll put it another way. You have not grasped the grace of God unless it has changed your attitude toward money. Money has lost its grip on Zacchaeus' heart. Why? Because he found a greater treasure than money, and that is Jesus. You see, Jesus loves Zacchaeus. Money couldn't do that. Money didn't love Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus could love money, but money would never love him back. Jesus truly and fully loved Zacchaeus. Jesus forgave Zacchaeus for all his sin, all his messed up ways, all his evil in his heart. Jesus forgave him even in his failures, and money couldn't do that. Zacchaeus had experienced grace and acceptance, what his heart longed for most, and money couldn't give him those things. You see, when the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace found in him grips your heart, everything else starts to lose its grip, including money. You see, the problem with money is this. If I pull out a $100 bill right now, it's not like, which I don't have, but if, if I had one, uh, which would have been cool, if I had a $100 bill, the, the, the bill itself is not worth $100, is it? It's paper. Now, it's got that fancy thing you can look in the eye, you know, you can see how it has. What's that thing, the paper mark, whatever? But it's not worth $100. Why is it worth $100? It's because the value it represents. You see, money represents things. Not, these aren't the only two things, but I think uh, th these are what I would draw out here. Money represents freedom and security. It also represents things like power. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give 50% of my money to the poor. And then he offers to repay fourfold back those who cheated. Why these numbers? Or why so high? 
In the Old Testament, the requirement for charitable giving, right, the giving you would give to, to the priests, the poor, to the temple, that sort of thing, the, the charitable giving was 10%. It's called a tithe. That was required. And if you cheated someone, the Old Testament law says you restore back 20%. So you give back 120%. And Zacchaeus says, no, I'm going to give back 400%. What's happening here? Why is he doing this? Why not just fulfill the Old Testament law that he had learned? It's because his understanding of money has changed his understanding of freedom and security. Money represents freedom. The more money you have, the more freedom you have, right? To buy what you want, to eat where you want, to live where you want, money is freedom in so many ways. You're free to do things the more you have. But money is also security. The more money you have in the bank, the more money you have in investments, and the better your 401k is doing, the more secure we feel. It's protection against unforeseen trials. Loss of job, illness, home repairs. The more I have, the less I have to worry about those things. That's because it's my security to some degree. This encounter with Jesus and his grace causes Zacchaeus to understand something profound about money. When we give our resources, whether it's to spread the gospel or to help those in need, many of us, we give at a level that doesn't affect our freedom or security. In other words, we give in a way that it doesn't affect what we can do or how we live. Our giving, in other, in other words, our giving doesn't make us vulnerable. And the connection to Zacchaeus is this. He was wealthy. And I know that's a loaded term. Who's wealthy, right? We, we could argue that all day. But he was wealthy. For wealthy people, giving away 10% of their income doesn't affect their freedom and security. It just doesn't. It can be a good thing, but it doesn't affect them. They're still, they still have all the same freedoms, all the same security. And so that's why Zacchaeus gives. He says, I'm giving 50%. I want to choose to pay restitution at an even greater level because he's saying, I realize that my freedom doesn't come from my money. I now realize that, my, that real security doesn't come from my money, but from the one who has promised to provide for me for now and eternally. He is treasuring Jesus, and that frees him from seeking freedom and security and money. And I think that's the call for us today. We are, we are called to be so enamored with the grace of God, so filled by the grace of God, so freed by the grace of God, that we don't seek money and possessions to find our freedom, to find our security, or to find our power. But actually, when we give it away, we're giving away some of our freedom. We're giving away some of our, our security or our supposed security. We're giving away some of our power. Why? Because we have all those things in Jesus. And see, that's the, 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 the last thing we got to say is, how do you get here, right? How do we get to this point? How did Zacchaeus get there? It was a personal encounter with Jesus. We read this earlier, but I'll read it again. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul, the, these two chapters, Paul, is the, it's the lengthiest discussion on stewardship, on giving in the New Testament. And he says, how can I encourage you all to give in Corinth? And he says, well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's saying, listen, Christian, Jesus was infinitely wealthy in heaven. Was he not? He, he could hold galaxies in his hand, right? He ruled over the universe. There was nothing he didn't have. Glory, beauty, power, security, love, freedom, joy, peace. Everything that we long for, Jesus already had. Everything we think money would give us, Jesus already had. And if he stayed rich, we would be dying in our sin and dying in our poverty. So what did he do with all of that wealth? He literally gives it up. He lays it down for you. The king becomes a beggar for you. The holy one becomes your sin bearer and mine. Why? Not just to be an example? No, so that you and I could experience all the wealth of his glory and his beauty and his power and his freedom and his security and his love and his joy and his peace. Listen, behold Jesus on the cross. Let the beauty and power of God's grace grip your heart that he gave his son for you. Would you give your son for your enemy? Is it not astounding that you who deserve nothing have been given everything? And it didn't cost you anything, but it cost Jesus everything. And he did it for you. That means you're his treasure. That's what that means. And when you finally, when you finally see him making you his treasure, listen, when that sinks in, then he will become your treasure. I know there are some of you here who are not Christians and you're wondering, uh, well, what do I do with this, right? I, I want you to know, maybe you're watching online. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're exploring Christianity. Maybe a friend or family member invited you. Maybe you're struggling with another issue in your life. You're like, look, it's, money's not my thing. Okay, maybe you feel unloved or lonely or ashamed. Listen, Jesus says in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue people like you and me who are spiritually lost. He came to give us freedom from sin and true security, and that only comes from admitting that just like Zacchaeus, you and I need Jesus as our Savior. We need to repent, turn from our sin, and receive the gift that Jesus gives us. Freedom, joy, forgiveness, eternal life. What you and I need most is a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And when that happens, whether it's money, or whether it's fear, whatever else is going on in our world, or whether it's sexual sin, whatever that thing is for you, it will lose its grip on your heart. Because it's, it's, it's what um, Oswald Chamber, uh, Ch Chamber says is the uh, impulsive, uh, how do, what did he call it? Oh, see here, here I'm going off notes. That's terrible. Um, uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, he's saying when you have Jesus as your affection, it, it, it drives out anything else lesser. The question I get is, is this often. How much should I give? Christians... Church members often ask, how much do I give? It, it, should I tithe? Is that the goal? Is that the New Testament command? And our short answer as a pastors, uh, as elders of our church, our answer is no. The New Testament does never commands a tithe. It never gives an amount. And if you read it, you'll realize Jesus, in just the chapter before, asked the rich young ruler to sell everything and follow him. Here, Zacchaeus gives 50% away. 
The poor widow, in a little while after this, will give just a single penny. We're not commanded to tithe. But listen, before you be like, yes, I'm free, I don't have to give. Listen. If God commanded a tenth from his people when they were under the law, it's hard to imagine that after the cross, we would give less. Being under grace doesn't free us to do less. It actually frees us to do more. So I think 10% can be a starting point. There's no rule, though. I'll quote C.S. Lewis here. C.S. Lewis says it well. Quote, I do not believe one can settle how much one ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, he says, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, hamper us I should say it is too small. Listen, there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. Or if you want something that's all truth, how about what Paul says? The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give. So there it is. There's the command to give. Must give. But look, as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you want to give in such a way that shows that the gospel has changed your heart, give willingly, give generously, give joyfully. For some, 10% is nearly impossible because of various obligations and past things and challenges. I've been there. I would say, okay, move in that direction. Keep moving the sense of generosity. Work on a budget. Take steps into training and spending. But for many of us, 10% would be a sacrifice. Right? Increasingly in America, there are some uh, who, who 10%, that will be a sacrifice. You have to decide. For others... 10% won't even do a dent. I wouldn't even feel it. Again, it's not up for me to decide. Each one must decide in his own heart. I want you to ask, think about what would happen if every single person, and I know so many of you give generously. I know so many of you give sacrificially. But what would happen if every one of us started giving generously to spread the kingdom of God and to help the poor and the needy? Our church would be able to spread the gospel like never before. We would be able to support more missionaries, plant more churches, meet real needs physically and spiritually. We would literally turn the world upside down. It's exactly what the early church did. And I want to tell you, it's the testimony of our church even today. Did you know, church, over the last few months, you as a church gave to help several church members fix broken water heaters? Did you know you paid rent for those who have gotten kicked out of their apartment? Did you know you gave several thousand dollars over the last few months in food cards to help family, families have food on their table? Did you know you gave to a missionary to pay for a life-saving lung surgery? You gave to help renovate a seminary in Romania. You took baskets to almost 50 widows and shut-ins just yesterday. We're doing this. Praise God. I'm saying just keep fanning it into flame. And I'll just close with this. When I, whenever I share on giving, I do this almost every time, and I, and I know it's a risk. 
But I want you to know I don't ask you to do anything that my family is not already doing. Danny Beth and I try to live by this motto. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Ever since we got married, we decided we would start by giving 10% to our local church. And as the Lord provided more, we would gradually increase that percentage every year to missionaries that we, friends that we have, uh, to giving to those in need, compassion children. And listen, is it hard? And is it scary? And does it stretch us? Yes. And we don't always get it right. Danny Beth is ready to give at a moment's notice, and my heart still struggles. My heart still is ready to hold back. I still find security in money. But we desperately want Jesus to be our greatest treasure, not our money. And listen, it's a joy. At the end of the day, when we actually give, you realize you'll never miss money you give to the Lord. It's the most interesting thing. You'll never regret it. I've never found someone who's regretted, I wish I gave less to the Lord. Why? Because when you give, something happens in your heart. It redirects your heart. It redirects from freedom and security here to freedom and security in the, in the one person who actually gives you that. Let's be a generous people who turn the world upside down. Let me pray. Jesus, we need your help in this. You gave everything. You've not asked us to give everything. Some of us may be called to give up so much to follow you in obedience as we bear witness to the, the good news of Jesus here or somewhere else around the country or somewhere else around the world. But you are good and you provide and we need your help to live out the, the faith that has been entrusted to us to show that Jesus, you truly are our deepest satisfaction and our greatest treasure. Lord, we know that the greatest need in our hearts is transformation because of the grace of God. And when we, when we grasp that, it will produce this, this freedom and security. It will, it will release our grip on money. We thank you that as we even now in person celebrate the Lord's Supper, we can remember what you gave that we might have the greatest treasure ever, you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.